0: Once again, we are in the book of Philippians. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> you know, As long as there have been theologians, there have been con- conversations, disagreements, debates, books, lectures, etc. about a variety of matters of theology and biblical doctrine. One of my personal favorite stories from church history about some of these debates is a man by the name of Bishop Nicholas who was listening to a heretic by the name of Arius argue for his view that Jesus Christ was created and was not truly God in the sense that God the Father was. Well, Nicholas became so enraged as he listened to the heresy that he got up from his seat, he crossed over to where Nicholas was speaking, or no, I'm sorry, he crossed over to where Arius was speaking, and he slapped him across the face in the midst of the council that was happening there. Now, that story is my favorite, not because I think that's how we should handle disagreements. Don't slap people. (laughs) That's not how we do things. But it's my favorite because it's it's kind of a comical mental image. This was at the Council of Nicaea. This was a gathering of the leaders of the church at that time as they were debating and hammering out the, the nature of Jesus Christ as what the Scriptures taught as they were seeking to come to agreement on that point of what the Scriptures taught. And here we have this moment of one of the bishops slapping another man across the face. It's a slightly comical image to me. And also because this man, Nicholas, was eventually called Saint Nick. And this is where we get Santa Claus. So whenever you see Santa Claus, think of a man named Nicholas slapping a heretic across the face. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> so there have been points of, of heated contention surrounding different areas of theology in the history of the church. But again, don't be slapping people. I want to make that clear. But well, one of those areas of disagreement that has generated ongoing discussion is that of sanctification and how that works itself out in the life of a believer. <clears throat> that word sanctification, if that is not a familiar word, it, it simply refers to, well, to sanctify something simply means to set something apart, to to identify it as holy. Sanctification is the word that is used in the Bible to describe the process of by which one makes something holy, by which one sets something apart for a specific purpose. The Bible uses this word sanctification in two primary ways. In one sense, it talks about sanctification as a completed act. We are sanctified. We have been sanctified. We are set apart as God's children. We have been sanctified. We are holy and beloved in His sight. That is one sense. But there is another sense in which we are still being sanctified. And it is a lifelong process. And it is this second sense that Christians usually refer to when speaking about sanctification in the believer's life. It is the process of progressively being made holy in God's sight, progressively conforming to the image of God's Son. We could say it's our growth as Christians, our maturity in the faith. It's a lifelong process. It takes place over a period of time. The debates surrounding the topic of sanctification have taken place in a variety of forms, but they all revolve around a handful of central issues. The first is the question, how does sanctification work? How does this process work? Are we sanctified by grace Or are we sanctified by our own works? Is it my responsibility to become sanctified, or is it God's sanctification process upon my life? Or is it some mix of both? That is a question that is debated. How connected are the different phases of our salvation? How connected is the concept of justification with sanctification? Is there overlap or are they separate concepts altogether are they, are they related is is sanctification optional where maybe you are justified but may perhaps we can pass over this process of sanctification how far does sanctification work itself out in this life will we ever attain perfection in this life and I've raised a series of, of questions that surround the topics and the conversations relating to the biblical teaching of the doctrine of sanctification. And in a, I've actually broken a cardinal rule of preaching just now because I raised questions that I can't hope to answer in this sermon today. And you're always taught, don't raise questions you can't answer in the sermon. Well, I just wanted to let you know that I do plan to answer some of these Time prevents us from being able to answer all of them. But if we want to have conversations about those things, we can. But There are—the main topic of things that we're going to seek to address today is this main question of how does sanctification work? How does sanctification work? Though we don't have time to explore all that the Scriptures teach on the totality of the topic of sanctification— we can discuss today how sanctification works as the main focus today if we're grappling with this question how is it that we are progressively experience holiness before god how does that come about and though i've set this message up to answer really a theological question as it relates to our practical experience as believers We do not want to lose sight of the fact that we are working through a passage of Scripture. We are working through the book of Philippians. And and the reason we are addressing this is because this is where the text leads us today as we continue to move through the book of Philippians chapter 2. And so that is where we are once again this morning. We've just come out of this glorious passage where Paul has been expounding to us the glories of Christ. We have seen the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, His humility that led Him from the highest position in all the universe and the glory and the majesty that was due Him there, and setting aside that glory for the sake of taking on humanity, taking on the lowest position imaginable as a slave, and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The highest being taking the lowest position. We have seen that because of his great humility humility, and because of his great sacrifice, God has now highly exalted him. He has given him the name with the reputation that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord And He is Lord. Amen? Jesus Christ is the Lord. He has authority. He has power. And we need to recognize Him as such. And so as we come into this next passage of Scripture, as we begin to look at verses 12 and 13 today, we need to see that there is a flow of argument in Paul's writing here. These passages are connected together logically through the words that Paul uses. He connects them together we're going to see that in light of what Christ has done in His humility and sacrifice on the cross, and in light of what God has done in raising Him up from the dead and seating Him at the right hand of God the Father on high, exalting Him, giving Him that name that is above every name, in light of that, Paul now begins to shift back over to how we are to live our lives in light of what Christ has done and what God has done. How we live our lives as Christians we are to acknowledge this reality, that Jesus Christ is Lord. To Paul, this is the logical conclusion. This is what we should do in response to what we have learned and what we have seen. And any other response than what Paul is about to explain to us in this text, any other response, fails to see the and to grasp the significance of what Christ accomplished and what God did by raising him up. And so we see the connection here in this passage. So let's look with, uh, at uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, "...therefore, my beloved..." Again, there's that connection with what just came behind it. "...therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence..." Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In this text, we see that there is a central command in these two verses, and everything else is attached to that command to tell us more about that command. The central command is this Work out your salvation. That is the central command, the central thrust of these two verses. And then there are two clauses or or two phrases that tell us how to go about doing that. And then one phrase to tell us why. So two hows and one why. And so as we work through this today, we're going to address the central command and seek to understand, okay, what does this central command mean? What is Paul communicating to us? And then we will look to see how he wants us to do this, and then why. So that is where we are going this morning. The central command is to work out your salvation. What does this mean? What does it mean to work out your salvation? Well, we can confidently say and assert what it does not mean. All right, this is not referring to earning or meriting our justification before God. We know Paul is crystal clear when he speaks of justification by faith apart from any works of the law. That's the whole book of Romans, right? The book of Galatians as well. The books of Romans and Galatians make this crystal clear. There is no way to earn our own salvation, to merit our justification, but rather we are justified by grace through faith. It is not of works. We saw that in Ephesians as well. Everywhere Paul writes, he hammers home this point. That salvation is by grace through faith. So it is not through that working out your salvation does not mean that we earn our salvation. There is nothing that needs to be added to the work of Christ. We have this wonderful song, Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. There's nothing more to do, nothing more to be added to it. Anything that we think we might do to earn salvation or even to retain or maintain our salvation diminishes the work of Christ who said it is finished. It's done. There is no more work to be done. It is finished. So Paul is most assuredly saying not saying add to your salvation or accomplish your salvation or anything of that nature. But he does say to work it out. Work out your salvation. Well, the word used by Paul there refers to that which is produced by something. It refers to one's manner of life. In fact, Paul uses this word quite often throughout the rest of his epistles. This word is used 22 times in the New Testament. Twenty of those times, it is the Apostle Paul using it, and it's referring to that which is produced by something, or the manner of life as one lives out their daily life. And so when he says to work out your salvation, first, he is assuming that you have a salvation to work out. Right? Can't be, you can't be adding something if you've already got it. Like you can't be earning something you already have. So he's assuming that that salvation is present, And now when he says work it out, it's that which is produced by that salvation. It is the manner of life that flows out from the salvation that you already have in Christ. So I really like the way the the NLT phrases this. I think it's helpful. It says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. So we're not earning, we're not retaining... We're not maintaining our salvation, but our effort is to be a reflection of our salvation. We work because we have been saved, not because we are trying to get saved. I find a bit of a parallel between the the future glories of Christ, the future glories that await Christ when The text says that one day God is going to place all His enemies under His feet. And one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is the future glories that awaits Christ. And then we see what Paul is calling us to here. It's almost as if Paul is looking ahead to that final state. He's he's looking ahead to when Christ will be glorified. He's looking ahead to when we will receive our ultimate and final salvation before God. And he says, okay, now live your life now in light of what's coming. Live your life now in light of the the, the hope that we have, the confident expectation we have that we are going to stand before God because of the salvation that we have in Christ. Live your life now in light of what's to come in glory. That word for work also has the sense of a continual working. It's, it's an ongoing, there's a sense of an ongoing action implied there. So the, the NET Bible, the N-E-T, translates it this way. It says, continue working out. It's an ongoing task. It's something that we continually do. It's not something that, okay, we did it and now we're done and, and that's the end of it. No, it, it's ongoing. We continue to work it out. We continue to press on in this Salvation has certain effects, and we are to work to continually show those effects within our lives. I'm stressing this side of this because that's, that's what we see in our text right now. But we do need to be careful with this. We do need to be careful here because in our efforts in our striving, in our labor to try to work out our salvation, to be obedient to the text as it's laid out before us, in that pursuit, we can easily slip into a works righteousness mentality. And so we need to be on guard against that. We can so easily come to rest in our own good works and in what is what we think is being produced in our own lives rather than in the finished work of Christ on the cross. So we do need to be reminded of this, and we do need to do what the text says, but we need to do so with care that we don't carry these these instructions too far that we begin to be resting upon our own good works rather than upon the finished work of Christ. We need to maintain that distinction. It's important to see the order of how things flow out, that it is salvation first by faith and faith alone, nothing else. And then as a response to that, that is what Paul is describing here, the working out of our salvation. By way of illustration, this week I was listening to a podcast where there was a story of a man who who felt guilty that he wasn't sharing the gospel as much as he felt like he should. And it was just eating him up. He was just so distraught over this. He was so guilt-ridden over this. He felt that this was something he ought to be doing, And so he's under tremendous weight upon his own life for activity that he was not engaging in. Well, his pastor was talking to him about this, and he sought to clarify something with this man. He said to him, you know, you don't have to evangelize to be saved, right? Like, that's not a requirement for you to earn a salvation. You can't earn your salvation by evangelizing, You were justified by faith. Jesus did everything for you. There's nothing more that you could do to make Him love you more or less. There's nothing that you can do to make Christ love you more or less. It is finished in the cross. This is such an important point. Jesus Christ's love for you is not contingent upon your performance before Him. Jesus Christ's love for you is not contingent upon your performance before Him. But it is that very love that He has for us that should drive us to seeking to live for Him. Some might say that's a subtle distinction, but it is, it's an incredibly huge distinction. I mean, we can't put the cart before the horse here. We, we have to keep things in order. That Christ's love and the salvation that we have, it's our response to that that leads us out into obedience. And so it was the next week, that the pastor happened to run into this man again out in the streets, and this man was out passionately and joyfully sharing the gospel with others. So the pastor approached him and said, okay, what changed here? What's, What's going on here? And the man replied, Jesus did it all. Jesus did it all. It's done. That is such good news that I had to get out and share it. I had to get out because of what he did. And that's it. This man got it. He, he was working out his salvation not to try to earn favor with God, not to try to earn the love of Christ, but because of the salvation that he already had, because of the love that was his in Christ, he then lived that out. He then worked out showed the results of his salvation in his life. And so we are to live our life in such a way that shows the reality of our own salvation. Again, not to earn it, not to keep it, not to maintain it, but to show it. And that is the central command in this passage. Work out your salvation. Now again, that command is modified by the phrases that surround that central command. And so now let's turn our attention to those. The first how clause, okay, how are we to do this? What does this look like? How are we to work out our salvation? And the first of those clauses is found at the beginning of verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Not only in my presence, but also in my absence, work out your salvation. If you recall, Paul was in prison at the time of writing this epistle. He legitimately did not know the results of his trial, whether he would be executed because of his supposed crimes, or if he would be set free. He did not know the reality of that, but but his conclusion that we saw back in chapter 1 is that whatever the case, whether he lives or whether whether he dies, he wants to honor Christ in his body by life or by death. And so he says to live is Christ, but to die, that's gain. In either case, he will honor the Lord. And so even though he doesn't know what the results of the trial will be, he does hope that he will come again. He hopes that he can minister to them once again. He hopes that that he might help them uh, progress in the faith and in joy. But there's that reality that it very possibly, there's a very possible reality that he may die and that he will not have that opportunity to come before them and minister to them. And so he writes to them, as he writes, he urges them, hey, whether I'm able to come to you or not, this is what I want you to be doing. Whether I come to you or whether I am executed and I'm not able to come to you ever again, this is how you ought to be engaged in your life. Here's what I want you to do. But we also see the tenderness of Paul in this text. His tenderness towards the church. He says, therefore, my beloved... My beloved, there's, there's a tenderness there. Those tender words remind us of Paul's affection that he has for the church as it is expressed in chapter 1 when he writes that, that he holds the church in his heart and he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. So when Paul is writing this and he's urging them to, hey, work out your salvation. Let your life live, be lived in such a way that it reflects the salvation that you have. As he writes to the church... He's not seeking to beat them over the head. Like, hey, shape up here, buddy. You you gotta get into shape here. Like, that's not his approach. He's not beating them up. But rather, he speaks to them with tenderness. He speaks to them with love. Sadly, there there are many churches that do seek to approach how we live and how we walk this earth with a very... Hard mindsets. Pastors are marked by pastors haranguing from the pulpit about one thing or another, seeking to beat people over the head with the Scriptures. And that's not Paul's approach here. Now, when there's correction that needs to be had, Paul is never shy about speaking bluntly and directly to issues and to problems. But he always does so with tenderness and with affection for those that he writes to. So we need, to not, we need to not miss the love and the grace that Paul displays here. And th- honestly, this is a good reminder for me as a minister of the Word of God, as someone preaching the text. As as I preach, I need to pay attention to my own words and how I present the Word of God. I need to be careful that I, even though there are times when God's Word is it is blunt, it does le- bluntly address sins, and when that happens... I'm going to do that. As the word of God is presented, I'm going to present that for us. But I also need to remember the love and the tenderness that Paul had for the church. And I need to be reminded of that and expressing that even as I declare the word of God. So I pray that you you can keep me accountable in this area. That I, as I present the word of God, that I am never beating you over the head with the Bible. But rather in seeking to admonish you as a brother in Christ. That this is what the Word of God says, and this is how we ought to be living. And to be pursuing that, speaking truth in love. So you can hold me accountable in that area. Well, Paul, as he approaches, he, is, he speaks with this tenderness. He speaks with this love for the Philippian church. And he does not express doubt in the Philippians. Right? He says, that, hey, I, I know you've been obedient, all right, you've sought to honor Christ, and now I want you to keep that up. All right, he says, as you have always obeyed, right, this has been your habit, this is what you've been doing, now I want you to continue on with that. He recognized that it's possible that some may have been motivated to obedience because teachers in the room, Right? This is a concept we're all familiar with growing up either in a classroom. But, hey, when teacher's in the room, everybody's on their best behavior. But guess what happens when teacher walks out of the room? That's, that's when all hell breaks loose, right? <laughs> the classroom just gets in a chaos, right? The, when the teacher is in the room, when the boss is around, when the supervisor is present, well, that's when we behave because boss is watching. Well, We learn the most about a person when the authority figure is no longer present. When the teacher steps out of the room. When the boss takes a vacation. When the supervisor goes to check on another project. That's when we discover the real character of who we are. It's not what we do in public or while being watched that defines our character. It's what we do behind closed doors when we think no one else is watching. When we think that there is no one to see. Paul expresses his delight in the obedience of the Philippians while he was with them. And now he says to them, okay, that's good. Now do it while I'm gone. I do it when I'm not watching. Right? And not only, in my, not only in my presence, but also in my absence, work out your salvation. Be active in this. Be continually working and striving in holiness for these things. Because here's the fundamental reality the fundamental reality is that we do not work for men. We do not work for mankind. or We do not work or we shouldn't work for the praise of men and the praise of those around us. Colossians three twenty two through 24 says this, "...bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, But with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, and not for man. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. As we go about our lives, as we seek to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord, it's it's not for ourselves, and it's not for those watching. It shouldn't be. But rather, we strive for the honor of Christ. Paul says earlier in chapter 1, we saw him. Well, in, in my body, Christ, I want Christ to be honored in my body, whether it be life or by death. Whatever happens in this life, I want to live for the honor and the glory of Christ. And so he says that we ought to be living in like manner. Not because we are being watched, but because we are serving our Savior Jesus Christ. Our striving is for Christ. So that's the first clause that we see there of, okay, we're to work out our salvation. How are we to do that? Well, our striving is for Christ. That's how. Second, our striving is from a position of worship. Our striving is from a position of worship. He goes on to write, okay, not only in my presence, but also in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Now, these words might sound strange to our ears. Like, well, why should we be afraid? Like, why, why should that be our approach here? And we need to understand the biblical significance of those two words fear and trembling. In the Old Testament, these words were often associated with reverence and awe in response to who God is and what He has done. One commentator wrote that these words describe, quote, the appropriate response to God's mighty acts. It is the appropriate response to God's mighty acts. So we strive for obedience, and we do so from a position of worship. We do so from a position of worship. Now, is our God worthy of worship? Yes. Yes, amen. He is worthy of worship. And we've we've just seen this, right? We've just seen this wonderful passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Ultimate humility, ultimate service, ultimate sacrifice. Is he worthy of worship? Yes, he is. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is he worthy of our worship? Yes, yes and amen, he is worthy of worship. We see what he has done. We see the willing sacrifice of Christ, willing to set aside His own glory for the sake of serving us, lowly, poor, sinful, wretched human beings that we are. And He died for us. He is worthy of our worship. So God has highly exalted Him. He is He is presented as Lord, and as we live our lives, as we work out our salvation, we do so with fear and trembling, an appropriate response to God's mighty acts, reverence and awe, beholding the majesty of who God is and what He has done. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to travel around and visit and and behold some of the majesty of what God has placed in this creation. I remember traveling to the Grand Canyon. I've only ever been there one time. But when you step up to that Grand Canyon for the first time, and if you're brave enough to step up to the edge, <laughs> you behold just the beauty that is there in that canyon. But also, it's, 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 it's kind of terrifying. <laughs> If you step up to that edge even when there's a railing and you look over and you see how far that is down it's it's a bit scary but it's awe inspiring and we behold that and we see wow this is amazing this is incredible and it's also scary and so there's a healthy respect and there's a healthy fear even in the midst of beholding the beauty of what is before us that's a little bit of the concept A little bit of the concept of reverence and fear before God. Fear and trembling. Beholding the glory of who God is and what He has done. While recognizing that our God is a consuming fire. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, as the book of Hebrews tells us. But we behold the majesty and we worship and so we live out our lives. We, we strive for holiness from a position of worship. So those are the two hows. That is, that's the how of the central command of how we are to work out our salvation. Well, now we turn to the why. Why is it that we work out our salvation? We do so striving for Christ and not for man. We do so with fear and trembling from a position of worship. But why do we do it? The answer is given to us in verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do and to work for his good pleasure. That verse starts with the word for, or we could translate it as because. Why should we be obedient even when teacher is out of the room? Right? Why should we be obedient? Why should we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Because it is God. Who works in you. Now, this is where things begin to get difficult as we try to wrestle through and grapple with the text. This, this seems paradoxical to us. We might say, okay, now which is it, Paul? Which is it? Are we to work out our salvation or is it God who works within us? Which What, what, and what are we doing here? Am I to be working or is God working? And the answer we find in the text is yes. Yes. We are to work, and God is working. Sometimes there is great difficulty in seeing how these two verses fit back to back, and they are logically connected. But I praise God for this because in this, these two verses, we see how, how sanctification, how our growth in holiness, how this works in our lives as believers. We see it unfold for us in these two verses. We labor and we work and we strive for holiness. That's a reality. And there are many passages in Scripture that instruct us to do so. But ultimately, it is God who is at work within us, laboring for us, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Paul's words drive this This apparent paradox home. He says, you are to work because God works. The two words for work in both verses 12 and 13, they have the same root. It's the same Greek word there. We work and God works. So all of our working, everything we do is undergirded by the working of God. And this is a wonderful thing. This is an absolutely beautiful, wonderful promise. Back in chapter 1, we saw that he who began a good work, again, there's our word again, he began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And now here we see that God is continually working within us. And notice how he works. God is working, notice there's two things that says how he works. It says it's both to will, that speaks of the desire that we have, even just the desire to do what is right. God is working that within us. He works in the willing, the desiring within us, and the doing. So both the will and to do are both present here. The actual actions themselves are born out in God. Now we wrestle with this. All right, this is challenging for us. We wrestle with this. On the one hand, Scripture is clear that we have personal responsibility. All right, well this is We have the commands of Scripture. That's, and the verse that we immediately just studied bears that out. Right? Work out your salvation. We have personal responsibility in our Christian lives. Additionally, there are many passages that call us to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to put on righteousness, to flee immorality, to pursue holiness. And these texts are known as the imperatives of Scripture. An imperative is simply a command. The imperatives, this is how God's Word instructs us to live. But these words are never used in a vacuum. We never have these commands independent from other teaching. But rather, these imperatives are always connected with what is known as the indicatives of Scripture. Scripture. The imperatives are the commands, while the indicatives are words that simply make a statement of fact. This is the reality. So we have statements like, You are children of God. That's an indicative. Christ has redeemed you. That's an indicative. And what we find is that every imperative of Scripture, every command, it's backed by a corresponding Indicative. It's backed by a corresponding indicative. The commands flow out from the statements of fact. And so we get passages like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called. You have been called. Right? That's a reality within your life. You are a believer. Indicative. Now, therefore, I urge you to walk worthy of that calling. There's the imperative. But the imperative flows out from the indicative. Because the fact is, well, it, and so as we, as we consider that, our passage in our passage, the, the imperative is to work out your salvation, right? That's the command. Work out your salvation. But the undergirding indicative is, is that we do so because God is the one who ultimately works within us. And this is important. This is so important because the fact is is that we are powerless, powerless to act on our own and to live out lives of holiness in our own strength. It doesn't work. It can't happen. And perhaps as we are going through the first portion of this message, (coughs) excuse me, as we're going through the first portion of this message, perhaps you you felt the weight of that, of the weight of that command that you're to work out your salvation, and yet you reflect upon your own life. Say, that's hard. There's difficult things in my life. I I try, I try, but I find that I keep failing. I've got this this nagging sin that I can't seem to get rid of. I, I can't seem to shake these certain habits in my life. How am I to actually do this? How can I work out my salvation when I try and I try and it's just not there? I want to do what's right, but I don't find within me the strength to do it. That's an expression of that powerlessness that we have of our own accord to do what Paul instructs. We can't work out our salvation on our own. We can't do it on our own. And that is why Paul gives us verse 13. And that's why verse 13 is such good news. That's why it's such good news. We aren't being asked to do it on our own. or We aren't being asked to, to labor in our own strength. But God is at work within us. The very fact that you desire to do what's right, that is evidence that God is at work within you. Though we are called to work at it, though we are called to live in this particular way and to do what is right, when we live in light of that, when we carry that out, we then look back and we rightly say, look what God did in my life because He brought it to bear. The Gospel of John chapter 3, verse 21 says that whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I, I kind of like the old King James in that text where it says those, his works have been wrought in God. I just like how that's phrased. It's wrought in God. It's brought about in God. It's carried out through God. God is the one who has brought it to bear. When speaking about his own labors as a minister of the gospel, Paul wrote in Colossians 1.29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, yeah, I toil. I labor here. I'm, I'm struggling through this. Those two words speak of an intense labor. I'm, I'm breaking a sweat in the midst of this. I'm battling. I'm fighting. But not in my own strength. It's in his strength that he is powerfully working within me. And isn't that good news? Isn't that good news for your life today? Today? That it's not just, I don't have to find the strength just in myself, but rather we see God is at work within us. We can rest in knowing that God is at work. We can rest in knowing that, that my labor can be done in His strength. Tremendously good news. Now, and I am coming to a close here, but I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon that there are debates surrounding how sanctification works. And those debates are present because, I believe, a lack of balance with the text of Scripture, particularly even with these two verses right here. On one hand, there are those who say that sanctification is by works, or at least they will stress works so much that you would get that sense that it is by works, that it's by us carrying it out. So they point to all the imperatives, all the commands of Scripture. It says, we are called to be holy as He is holy. We have the responsibility to work this out. But if they're not careful, this can tend towards legalism and works righteousness that merits or maintains salvation. So we need to be careful about that. On the other hand, there are those who would say that, no, we are sanctified entirely of grace. It is God's work. And so we are more or less passive agents in the process. And so there are phrases like, let go and let God, that flow out from this line of reasoning that reflects this mindset. And we, are, we don't have to work at our sanctification because it's all of grace and it's all God in the midst of it. And if they're not careful, this can tend towards antinomianism, which refers to lawlessness, to saying there's, that there is no law for us as believers and we can live... However we please, it can tend towards that kind of mindset, that lawlessness, that says it doesn't matter how you live because we are not responsible for your own sanctification. God's got to do the work, so why are you worried about it? And so that is the other end of the pendulum. And what we need between these two extremes is biblical balance that is present within these two verses that are found back to back in this epistle. Work out your salvation Because it is God who is at work. We are called to work at it, but it flows from the realities of our salvation as we behold the exalted Christ, knowing that God is at work, but then recognizing that, yes, we are to work. And yes, it is God who works in you. Our works are wrought in God, to use that King James expression. They have been carried out in God. And Jesus himself said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We are wholly dependent upon his grace. And yet we have this responsibility. And this is not some sort of synergism where there's like a division of labor where like, okay, if we do our part and God does his, we got a 50-50 relationship here and that brings it all together. No, it's not that. You know, when we talk about a marriage relationship, you know, it's, it's been said that it's not 50 percent the husband, 50 percent the wife and they make it work. No, it's hundred percent, 100 percent. It's a full and total relationship. and it's similar to what the, that uh, one commentator wrote about this. He says that our works and God's works are co-extensive. They extend all the way. We work at it because God is at work. It's coextensive. We labor and we work but we do so in the grace of God. And this can be difficult to understand and difficult to wrestle with, but it is a glorious truth. So I'm going to close with these encouragements for you today. I want you to rejoice. I want you to rejoice because the one who has begun a good work in you will complete it, and he's even now at work within your hearts and within your life. The same God who exalted Christ is at work at refining you. Your desires for holiness are the result of God's work within you. And every good deed that you have ever done is evidence that God is at work within you. So rejoice at the good work of God in your life. Take courage, O believer. Though you labor on in this world, though we struggle with sin, though the night is long and the days are hard, we have this promise from Almighty God that He is at work. Thus, we can move forward with confidence, knowing that if I am to work out my salvation, I will surely progressively prevail, because God is at work. He will work within us, and this does not mean that it will happen overnight, And this does not mean that that we will ever achieve sinless perfection this side of glory. We can strive in confidence knowing that God is at work. So rejoice and be confident. The words of the hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, came to mind. And I'm going to close with those words. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord, Sabaoth, His name from age to age the same, and He must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph. Through us, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, and one little word shall fail him. So go forth in joy, go forth in confidence. God is at work. We obey because he is at work. Let's pray. Lord, we are so very grateful of this marvelous truth and reality that you've presented for us in your word. Lord, we do have responsibility in this life. We are to work out your salvation. We are to continually work at it to show the results, the fruit of the salvation that is present within our lives. And yet we do so because of your grace, Lord. The grace that is available to us in your son, Jesus Christ. The grace that is enabling us and strengthening us Evidence that you are at work. Though we struggle, James wrote that we all stumble in many ways. Yet we come to you in faith, resting in the grace of Christ. Help us to rest in your grace. Help us to live faithfully, living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ, in your strength and in your power. pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.